Okay, so I'm recording on the computer and... Do you know how to get the audio so it's like... Um... Separate? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure that when it saves in Zoom, like you have the audio video file and then it also saves an audio file separately. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So, I didn't know that. Yeah, so we should be fine. Um, okay. So... Okay, so let's start. All right, welcome back to Cracks in Postmodernity. Today we have Joseph Schaefer, who I discovered on Instagram. Um, Joseph, tell us about yourself. Hello, um, I'm Joseph Schaefer. I'm a political alchemist and theorist from uh, the Midwest, from Omaha, Nebraska. Um, I run an Instagram account called Zizek on a Wired Brain. And um, I'm, a, I'm a writer, poet, I do all kinds of stuff. I'm very busy. So I first found Joseph when I was scrolling through Instagram and found a very provocative post about the American university experience, which we mentioned in the first episode. So Joseph, tell us what has been university been like for you and like how have you been analyzing that experience? Well, university, um, I don't want to like overstate um, because the positive is overwhelming or the, the university experience has been overwhelmingly positive. However, um, there's certain cultural trends that I notice that are very concerning. Um, I think coming out of, you know, COVID or whatever, um, there has been an intense lead into hedonism. I think people are really leaning into this sort of hollow um, these hollow social avenues. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing now. We're seeing a lot of excess, um, excess of all characters, you know, of, uh, you know, drinking, you know, all of the usual college vices are um, expanded tenfold. And I think it's because we live in uh, uniquely hollow times. And you said in that particular post that like, specifically with drinking like people will drink to the point of getting fucked up because like we're already fucked over because we already yes. have like everything's empty you know yeah yeah the the point of that post is that nobody says that they want to drink they always say i'm going to get fucked up and that that actually proves that um it was never about the drinking. It's about proving to themselves that they're fucked up, which they already are. So it's just a confirmation of their damaged psyche, their damaged persona um, that takes place through consumption. And you can see this in consumption of all characters, but that's how it's most prevalent. And so I should also mention, so your Instagram, Zizek on a wired brain. So like, Let's go into Zizek a little bit, who is a fascinating character to say the least. So like, how did your, how did you first discover him? Like, how has he shaped the way you look at what's going on today and all of that? Well, I think I have a kind of an unorthodox experience with Zizek because I didn't start with reading Zizek. I had actually read Hegel and I had like a passing familiarity with Lacan. Um, I got into Lacan more after reading uh, Zizek, but I had already read Hegel, Freud, Marx, 
And so the idea that there was someone out here kind of synthesizing these concepts in such a radical way was really exciting for me. And that's how I um, really got into Zizek. So Zizek is obviously writing in like a European context, but like, how do, how do you find that his writings help to shed light on what's going on in American culture now? Well, I think it's kind of um, almost sweet how Zizek doesn't understand um, the American problem. I think that you can use some of Zizek's analysis to kind of come at America, but America's a unique beast. And I think um, Zizekian tools um, are good to have in the arsenal. For instance, like he has this concept of, you know, over agreement, over identification um, ideologically. And I think that's, that's a powerful tool um, that Americans can use. But to take his political analysis, like I really think it is rooted in Europe um, in some sense, uh, at least my reading of Zizek comes across as uh, uniquely European because America is... I don't know, we've got a lot of shit that's going on here. It's a little bit different. Um, we see in America an acceleration of all these European trends. Uh, they kind of hit a fever pitch here. So in order to, um, I guess, fully apply Zizekian thought to America, you actually have to take his own concept of hyper-agreement and hyper-agree with Zizek himself. Yeah, and one of the things that we were talking about, like. America's particular struggles right now, like a lot of it has to do with hysteria over COVID, vaccine stuff. And you were saying like, I don't know, some of the things about your university and their requirements. Can you like talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I go to the University of Nebraska at Lincoln and we have, um, we're not one of the vaccine mandated universities. I know uh, a fair, fair number of them are, maybe a majority of them are, but we are not one of those states. Um, so what they do is they have vaccines available on the school campus, um, basically at any time. So you can always get vaxxed. Um, but if you can't, if you don't have your vaccination records, then what they do, at, or, or you haven't gotten it, if you can't prove to them that you've been vaccinated, then you have to do a weekly spit test and before you enter every building, you have to show an app. Um, and the app basically has a green check mark that says access granted. Now, the problem with this app is that it's like you can open up the app store and look up the Safer Communities app right now, and it will have one star because it is terribly glitchy. And this is what uh, dictates whether I get to go to class, whether I get to go into a dining hall. Basically, like all the functions of university getting getting to eat and getting to learn are dictated by this app. So, um, and it defaults to an access denied. So the screen has to load to the, like the green check mark of approval. So if it won't load because you have, because you're using the university's Wi-Fi, which doesn't work really well, or you're, you know, in a building where you can't really get good coverage, you simply won't enter the building. So, um, but you also kind of sense a breakdown in the ability of the safer communities, you know, the app checkers to enforce this because these are, you know, college students just trying to get some stuff knocked off of their tuition. If you walk right past them, they're not going to forcibly apprehend you. 
they simply won't do it. So there's a limit to the power that this you know app has over your life, but that's actually just dictated over how you're willing to exert your force against them. And so like the fact that in order to get access to the classroom, like you have to show this green check mark and that's all contingent upon whether this glitchy app is going to work. Like that's highly symbolic that that's yeah, really yeah. like, what does this mean? Like, what does it mean to you? Um, I think that it is, um, I think that the sign of the green check mark is really potent in a way that I can't identify um, because I think that, uh, well, I, I study, you know, I'm in an ancient Greece class right now and I'm learning a lot about, you know, what it takes to be a citizen in ancient Greece. And I think that this has like the same components of citizenship, right? Because if you're a citizen, which means that you're like a landowner and you follow all the proper rules for, you know, being, um, and now it's the opposite. Now a citizen can't own anything, but well, I'll save that. Yeah. Um, I'm going to finish, finish this thought. Um, you will, you get, you know, you get your grain, you get access to your courts, you get, um, you know, your children can, you know, uh, go to university, maybe even transcend their class, although that's pretty rare. Um, and it wasn't called university, but it, they had similar systems. And I think that now um, it's simply another signifier of citizenship and that to lose access to, you know, this check mark, this symbol of citizenship is to lose, you know, all the rights and freedoms associated with that you're paying the university for, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because like, I'm, so yeah, I ultimately decided to get vaccinated because of the circumstances of where I work is like the most reasonable decision for me. But what I don't understand is the fact that we create these, um, these moralistic polemics where, you know, you have the good side and the bad side. And it's like, where is, um, like, why do we have to demonize people who may make a different decision that, yeah, maybe we might not agree with, but, you know, like, why do we not give people the benefit of the doubt that they may have adequate reasons that, again, we may not understand? Like, why is my decision now the absolute truth and that anyone else doesn't agree like we go into hysterics um, and yeah i was uh i was on a bike ride the other day and i was going past the state capitol and there was some sort of an um anti-vaccine protest of some sort um there and so i went around you know just talking to people um because i have that natural journalistic proclivity or whatever um and i Ended up, I heard a story and I'm going to be covering the story for Splice today. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the story was that there's a woman who's in um, stage five renal failure mm -hmm. and she was, so she needs, um, uh, oh, what, what is renal? That's kidney yeah. or kidney? That's kidney? Okay, yeah, she needs a kidney transplant, right? And she was at the, uh, at the towards the top of the list um, to get this transplant. Um, but 
they called her and told her that because she was not vaccinated, she was going, to, her request for an organ was going to be put on hold. Mm. And so now it creates this interesting, um, well, kind of a horrifying ethic where if you do not get vaccinated, you know, you're actively confronting the possibility of death. And I think that this is kind of um, an intense case, um, but it kind of shows the, the, the level of commitment we're dealing with here. And I think that there are, um, and you know, people are concerned about the, the long-term health effects of the vaccine or whatever. I think they would be less prevalent for me, but someone who is having kidney problems and would be getting this vaccine right before a transplant, I have no idea what it would do to you. And I don't think the, the people in the scientific community can know for certain either what would happen, um, but you know, this is speculation. I'm not a medical professional in any way, but I am an ethicist and it seems highly unethical. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, this is such a clear sign of how the puritanical beginnings of our culture, like, have not worn away at all. Like, sure, we're secularizing, but you can see there's such a religious fervor behind this, like, otherizing of people who have a different position to the point that, like, you know, they're damned, we're the saved, and they're like, you know, they're like, I, I was speaking with a group of people that were really determined that, like, as they said, there's no, you can't reason with these people, like, they're so out of their minds, you know, and it's like, this idea that we're not, like, when you disagree with someone, we're not talking about fellow human beings who, yeah, again, we may not be on the same page, but we can have a conversation, we can consider like, what's your reasoning? What's your logic? The fact that we don't even share this same human nature now, like it's super Manichaean, you know? Like, yeah, and this Puritanism, I will add, um, shares nothing in common with the ethic of Christianity, uh, that of mercy, forgiveness, and understanding. Um, it doesn't, that's why Puritans were really bad theologians. Um, but um, I guess, you know, I'm revealing a bit of a Protestant character here. Um, but I really think that like the, the Christian ethos should be that of um, mercy. And I don't see any mercy today. Um, and that's why I think the only, the only type of mercy we see is probably, um, is probably used as a political cudgel. Yeah. I think that's that's the only dominant mode of mercy is, for instance, being like, oh, I'm going to let people out of prison or whatever um, to reveal my true virtue and my understanding of the human condition when that's not uh, that's not their focus, never has been. Yeah, it's not a true interest in the well-being of the other. It's more like my performance of you know, my virtuousness, my, my ethical, you know. Yeah. It all, it all comes back to performance. Um, people forget that they're not acting. Yeah. But like what I wonder though, is if, yeah, we're becoming more secular, you know, and like, a, at least on the surface, why is it that this fervor, this real belief that some of us are saved and others are condemned like, why is this so strong? Like, why has it not worn off? That I, like, I can't wrap my mind around. I don't have a, I don't have a good answer for that. 
Yeah, it is mysterious. Yeah. But, mm. but I think like, so with the performance thing, one of the things that like I think about a lot is the, um, the kind of camp aesthetic. Like it's something that I talk about on here a lot that, you know, camp's whole ethos is that of critiquing the emptiness, the hollowness of culture and society by being intentionally hollow. So it's like you turn everything into a performance for the sake of pointing out that like all these people who claim to be so moral, so upright, like are really just performing. And I think it's like, it's a very effective critique because instead of just pointing the finger and being like, oh, you're so empty, this is like so meaningless and vapid, you, you use the, um, the approach of the person you're critiquing to kind of like flip it on its head and be like, this is what you're doing. Do you see now how empty it is? You know, it's, it's Jackie and hyper agreement. It's to take something and to, you know, make it agree with it more than the ideology itself allows for. Um, you see something that you're um, opposed to. And when you see something that you're opposed to, you say this, you like uh, you you agree with it in some way, um, in a way that's more than the initial statement. Um, I think it's that for aesthetics, although I'm not really well read on aesthetics. So. Yeah, and I think that's like that is the whole point though of camp is that you're playing up the aesthetics, you're creating this this like super decadent aesthetic that again like morally is hollow, but at least you're claiming. You're not claiming that it's something that it's not like you know that it's hollow but at least you acknowledge the truth of it whereas so much of these performances of moral virtuousness really lack any substance but purport to be something greater you know yeah and now we have not only the decadence of you know actual decadence uh like richness yeah um you have the decadence of images signs performance um, and that's, uh, that's really what, where America cuts itself out from Europe is, um, you know, I, people say that we're the richest country in the world and that may be, um, economically true. Um, but we're also the, uh, the richest in terms of, uh, of, of signs of the proliferation of images. Mm. And I think like that was extremely evident during the Trump era because I mean, many people have said this, that like Trump is the first camp president. And I don't know, like at first when he said he was running for president, I thought it was a joke, but I like, I had to think back to the days when he was on Apprentice or when he hosted Apprentice. Cause like I was, I don't know, in middle school or starting high school then. And I, I have to say, like, I was obsessed. Like, I was so fascinated by this guy's persona because it's, like, it's so larger than life that it's ridiculous. And, like, he says these things that are really outlandish, and you know that they're outlandish. And that's what makes him so entertaining. It's like he's this um, amplified kind of mirror reflection of our culture. Um, and you can't help but be fascinated and stare. But then, yeah, so I don't know when I once he actually became president, it's like, okay, morally, a lot of these things that he says are atrocious. But when you look at it from an aesthetic or a performative 
point of view, it's like, wow, he's really, he's doing something right now. He's really saying something. He's holding up a mirror to the culture. But what I can understand is that like the people who actually take what he says seriously and get scandalized, like don't really see that, wait, this is actually us as a culture. Like we are, we are part of the culture that has produced Trump. Yeah, the far more um, stark condemnation is that we're also a part of the culture that created Joe Biden. Um, yeah, th- this is this is where it gets um really really uh, I don't know fearful. It's fearful times um, because the same security theater, um, the same uh, I guess um, what they're homogeneity yeah Mm -hmm. the the official messages coming out of the white house the images the speeches everything is completely homogenized um and so now we're facing out of the proliferation of like uh difference uh multiculture um not in the sense of like multiculturalism but Mm -hmm. like uh, uh, a non-unified culture um we're seeing the rise once again of uh, monoculture of unitary culture mm-hmm. um and i think it's really uh, i think it's creating uh, now a dialectical position between the two that either you have a proliferation or a homogenization and i think more or less the democratic party has become one of homogenization and the Republican Party has become one of the uh, uh, of uh, multiplicity of difference, um, which is ironic given both of their messaging on issues of you know immigration or whatever. But um, I, I think that in terms of images, there's a very strict divide there, mm-hmm. um, and you see these old you know Tea Party Republicans who are still around who are still kind of pushing you know, this outdated um, mode, but that's not the direction the party's headed in, I would argue. Why do you say that the Republican Party is more of the like diverse multicultural party? Because like I get uh, what you're saying about the monoculture of the left, but why do you say that about Republicans? Um, because I think that they have it within their base um, many, many cultural differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, many class differences. They've kind of, uh, they have an incredibly undisciplined party. Um, and I think out of uh, a lack of centralized discipline, you get these, these kinds of uh, interesting scenarios where, you know, Trump is telling Ted Cruz that his dad killed Kennedy. And you have like all of these, uh, you have like Turning Point USA, um, which is uh, kind of, distancing itself now from the Republican Party. Um, Like now they're uh, handing out pins that say, um, you know, there's three boxes and one of them says like Democrat, Republican, and neither of those are checked. Then in all caps, it says woke. And then they have a check for that. Um, There's kind of a, there's a, a third positionist character of the Republican Party that's gaining popularity. Some people call it populist. Some people call it fascist. Um, I have no interest in giving it a name, uh, but I think that that's where 
um, a proliferation of difference will occur. Now, that's not to say that it's actually good or something to be sided with, or that their policies will be beneficial to the people. That's not my claim at all. I'm simply saying that we will see a proliferation of culture and we will see like images being produced more and with more variety um, were they to take some power. That's yeah. not actually a good reason to support them. So if you're listening to this and you're like going to going to splice it and be like, oh, this is proof that he's telling me to vote for the Republican Party, no. you just be stupid. You're not listening. No, that's not what's happening. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, with the monoculture, it's very clear that for most mainstream neoliberals, Democrats, that this uh, talk of multiculturalism, diversity, yeah, like it's performative, very surface level. But in reality, it's this push to make all kinds of people kind of fit this very bourgeois, again, neoliberal mold, which, first of all, like, is that even in the best interest of people, especially minorities? But also, well, obviously not. But why, um, what I, what I'm trying to understand is like, why are so many people um, so naive as to think that this is um, like, they really do care about minorities about, um, you know, why? I think, I think it's not, um, I think very few people are true believers, although they exist. Um, Very loud. Yeah. Make a lot of noise. Yes, they do. Um, but I think I think far more often the situation is such that it seems as though there's no alternative because you have the Democratic Party saying, you know, we have this, you know, bourgeois mode of like multiculturalism. And then the, um, the Republican Party is almost uh, like openly antagonistic to your peaceable existence. Um, and have been for some time historically, probably since the Reagan administration. Um, so what then? What's your alternative? If you And you believe that it's your civic duty to vote and that it's very important that you do. Mm. I don't think there's an easy answer there. No, not really. I, it's just, it's baffling to me that so many people are... Um, I mean, I hear you're saying that it's like, okay, maybe there are a lot of people who see through it. I think a lot of it depends on like what environment you're in, like what part of the country you're in. Because from what I see, at least like being on the East Coast and being in, involved in certain institutions, like vast majority of people really buy into this. Um, and when you question and say, okay, but like, is this truly their intention? It's like knee jerk reaction to say like, how dare you question? Like, how dare you think that they don't have the best interest in mind of the people that they're claiming to advocate for? Um, so like where you are, what, what do you see? Like, what's the kind of culture that you're seeing? Um, well, the kind of culture I see twofold. So first I was, I was born in the birthplace of Malcolm X okay. and that same, um, that he, he didn't end up living there for very long. His family moved away, but there's a lot of um, associations in that town dedicated to preserving his legacy and so on. Um, but you can see that um, 
that kind of ethnic separation. Um, it's very different from like uh, Baldwin's view. I know on the last podcast you talked about Baldwin, your admiration for Baldwin. Um, and I think the view is different um, because Baldwin lived in New York, right? I think a lot of this is geographic. Baldwin lived in New York, eventually moved to France. But when Baldwin lived in New York, he kind of got um, this broad picture of the melting pot. As like flawed as it was, and um, as antagonistic to him as it was like personally, um, there really was um, no sense of like ethnic separation, ethnic identity. Like you kind of, you're kind of all jumbled in um, together and you lived next door to um, someone who was a different race of you most likely. Um, and I think on along racialized lines out here, it's very different because we have, we still have very strong um, ethnic enclaves. Um, cities are still divided um, racially. Segregation, Omaha, Nebraska is the most segregated city in the United States. So um, that's kind of, um, uh, I guess, a, a major difference. Yeah, because I mean, so Baldwin grew up in Harlem, like towards the end of the Harlem Renaissance when things were like not, conditions were not so great in that neighborhood. But as you said, like, because he's in Manhattan, had a lot of interaction with people of other backgrounds. Like, he, I think it was his second grade teacher was like, I think a, a kind of waspy Anglo woman. And when the fa his father found out that he was going to this teacher for like, you know, extra help outside of school the father freaked out and was like we don't trust white people and he's like but my teacher loves me why are you you know and then like he went to high school at a private jewish high school and pretty secular but still was was very aware of the prejudice and like yeah segregation within the city but because he had interaction with other people like really shaped the way he understood like himself, but also American culture. That like there are nuances here. It's not just you know, there's one side or another, you know. Yeah. But, but then I wonder like, so being in different, the fact that America is so big that there are so many different subcultures within this entire country different narratives that we ascribe to like is there a possibility of unity of a shared narrative at this point or like i don't know like this is what i think about a lot when i see all this division so i i put it um in a like a lacanian category mm -hmm. i think that the american um the american common cultural identity can only be established through an other um, I think that this is also prevalent in other countries, but I think it's most prevalent in the United States because it's so disjointed and so large and so geographically and culturally and economically diverse. Um, so you saw kind of um, the rollout of monoculture, American monoculture um, and homogenization and unity, things of that nature. Uh, after 9-11, during World War II, these were all wars against the other. And I think that there is an attempt to make COVID the same thing. I think it has, has in some sense worked um, that COVID is now the other and that we are all uh, fighting this disease. But this effort 
to uh, kind of construct that narrative has been severely harmed by um, vaccine and mask uh, discourse because this has created a new proliferation of differences, a new um, entrenchment of positions, so on down the line. But you saw towards the beginning of the pandemic before solutions were really offered and everyone was you know, rather terrified that there was a sense of we were all in this together, um, but kind of in a doomed way, like you're, you're, you're on the Titanic and uh, you're, you're looking around at the people around you. Um, but that is, um, that is a sense of unity. Um, mm. But I don't, I, what, is this the, is this the um, next other being doomed? Um, I think it's possible we're an empire in decline, um, but I'm not, I'm not exactly certain. Yeah, because this whole, I, I, it's this Manichaean sense of like, there are these two opposing forces that are like- Or is it a Hegelian sense? Is it? I mean, they kind of go together in a way. I mean, the dialect. Yeah. Yes. So then what's it going to take to, like, is there going to be some uh, uprising at some point? Like, does one force have to defeat the other? Because, like, I mean, first of all, if we don't believe that Hegel was right, or if we're not Manichaeans, then, like, it doesn't have to be this way. There can be some. It does, though. I mean, I'm a Hegelian. I think it, I think it Okay, so tell tell me why does it, what's, what's it going to have to, how's it going to have to play out then, if we're Hegelians? Um, I see two options now. Um, There will be um, either intense unification under basically the banner of neoliberalism and monoculture and we will try to um, colonize the world and we will fail miserably oh, wow um, that's one of the outcomes or the other outcome is such deep-rooted divisions that um, that there will be some kind of civil war even if it's not given that name um, and we'll see kind of a Brazilification of our politics um, where it kind of takes on more of a street fight kind of character. Uh-huh. Why are you a Hegelian though? Because I think he's right. Why? Um, I think, um, you know, I, I like to say that um, in some sort of Platonist sense that I was born a Hegelian and I'll die a Hegelian. And the, there's nothing I can do about it. So if, if born this way scratches the itch, if you want a fuller answer, I can give you one, but. Yeah, so I guess Gaga was right. We're born one way or another. I yeah. don't know, because I, I- One way or another, dialectically. Yes, dialectically. I don't know, I can't, I think, yeah, it's um, plausible to construe history existence this way but like I feel like I have too much evidence to indicate that some kind of reconciliation is possible maybe not for everyone there is reconciliation it just happens to occur through opposition that's what you're taking issue with yeah okay fair I don't know if the opposition like I do think there's an alternative but I do think we have a choice like, I think some people are just going to 
approach it through this opposition, but I do think there's like a possibility of something else. And you believe in free will. Christ, you're in bad shape. I know. Terrible. <laughs> um, free will is, I mean, it's terrifying. But do we not, you say we don't have free will. Hmm? You say we don't have free will. Yeah. Because. Uh, because I take a determinist position that all of our, um, all of our choices are kind of pre-combinated, um, that everything we do is predetermined in some sense, um, if not uh, by, by us or by the powers that be, then, then by God. Okay. Because I could get with the idea that like, okay, there's a kind of societal determinism that like our choices are set for us by the powers that be, Right now, there would be major corporations, government, social media, but on a more fundamental level, like I could be liberated from that. I can be, um, I can achieve some kind of enlightenment and see through it. I think liberation from those powers are still entirely possible. Mm -hmm. And that if liberation from those powers were to happen, that it would have already been, you know, constructed. Even that would be predetermined, but then, oh, okay. So we would. There is a possibility to be liberated from those forces. Absolutely, um, and that's something that I would not only support, but you know, give my life towards. It just so happens that I also think that my proclivity to give my life towards that cause is something that was written into my bones before my birth. So then, if we're talking on the level of like god or the ultimate um the world geist the world geist is um is there a difference between like having a destiny that's written for me that like i have the free will to choose to assent to or or reject versus like everything that i choose is already written well, I, I, I believe that your, um, yeah, your idea of wanting to reject or assent to destiny is something that was predestined. Even your proclivity to want that um, is something that's predestined. So hell is predestined for some people? Um, I'm not a Calvinist. Um, I believe that hell kind of uh, behaves in an interesting way as um, a, a test i don't believe that it's like a test of your your actions on earth mm -hmm. um but i think it it's a it's a show of your deviation from your faith that you get sent to hell okay interesting so basically if you don't trust the plan enough you get sent to the underworld okay uh so that capacity to trust so, that so you could so you could um you could mark that as descent um and you, I, I suppose you could like make that that choice okay um to 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 go to hell um that that if that's your proclivity um but i but i don't think that you per se would be the only person that sends you to hell okay a so lot there... of people would be coming with you based on, you know, social yeah. media, big corporations, da, 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 down the line. 
Okay, so if we because you can't freely make the decision to dissent from God's will, and the vast majority of people that do are aided by you know lots of evil and wicked powers, human and non. So if there is a God and God is merciful, then we're not totally screwed. No, and I believe God is merciful. Yes. Okay, so then we're we're okay. It's not totally. No, I'm not a doomer at all. Okay. Despite That's the beanie, I'm not a doomer. <laughs> That's comforting. So if we bring this back to universities before we wrap up, um, if this is the state of things in the world today, then how can one make the most out of the university experience? What would you say? I would say that you need to be, you need to be living good. Um, I think that a lot of people in college put a very high emphasis on doing things that they would have previously been disallowed for doing and then finding out that there was a reason they were disallowed from doing it in the first place and learning the hard way. And if that's how you have to go about things, I understand, I'm sympathetic to it. Um, but I think that to get the most out of the college experience, what you wanna do is you want to like get some fresh air walk into a lecture that's not yours, like learn something that's outside of your field of study, talk to strangers. Like you really, there's a lot, um, when you put upwards of 25,000 people who are your age and are among the smartest in your state in one place to eat, learn, think, and like behave together, cohabitate, to not take advantage of that and to sit in your room is sickening to me. I couldn't do it. Mm. So give an example. Some people can, but it's not my, it's not my cup of tea. So what's something you have done that like, give, like give an example of something you've done to like kind of break that trend. Well, I, I, I kind of have a natural proclivity for talking to strangers. So every time I'm on the elevator, I'm like, Hey, what, what's going on with you today? And they're like, oh my God, this kid's fucking weird, right? Yeah. But but it really it really does break this parasociality. Like they may just want to watch TikToks on their phone, but I don't actually care about what they desire because I know what's good for them. Interesting. I wonder what would happen if someone did that in New York. That's... Yeah, it's a little bit different out here. Yeah. I don't, now I want to try it though. Now I want to see what's going to happen. Hopefully I won't get hurt in the process but see you also have to have kind of a will to power about it like if someone tries to hurt you you know you have to be prepared to hurt back oh god forgetting Nietzsche and now all right oh yeah <laughs> I knew it would go there okay so there might be some hope in the end especially if you go outside of the box break the script um and actually look for something more yeah than and don't and don't just talk to like you know people you want to be friends with people you think are cool whatever because yeah. like this is something very important that people need to know is that like you should be talking to everybody and when i say everybody i mean everybody you need to be talking to the trees you need to be talking to yourself you need to be talking to you know uh, we have like masters. a yeah we have Everyone. a we have someone who's kind of called like the campus crazy lady right mm -hmm. because she'll stand up and preach about like how Obama was a lesbian and all these things. <laughs> okay. well, you have to talk to her you have to like you really have to check all of the 
all of the boxes. You have to really kind of put yourself in danger and that danger will be an animating force for the rest of your day. It's better than any cup of coffee on the market. Yeah, and less expensive. So there we have it. Um, there is hope. But yeah, you gotta take risks as always. Yeah, don't wear your seatbelt. No, please don't. Turn the airbags off, live life. Unless you're in a real car. Um, <laughs> no, even when you're in a real even car. Even then, fine, all right. Don't well, wear a condom, grow up, well, face the consequences of your actions. Natural law. Well, <laughs> so- Divine command theory. Divine command theory, there we go. So I'm gonna thank Joseph for joining Cracks and FOMO, and I hope that you've been sufficiently scandalized. Goodbye. Yeah, thanks. Okay.